How's it going, my fellow history scholars? Welcome back to the podcast where we talk about the unanswered questions of history and unravel the mystery and the many questions we ask about our past. Today, I'm your host, and with me is our special guest, Jason Colavito, who is the author of several books debunking many of the popular phenomena surrounding ancient aliens, classical mythology. He has written extensively about Lovecraft and his literature, as well as recently being published in the New York Times, as well as the New Republic. Jason, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I, I forgot to mention there that you're also coming out with a new book, Legends of the Pyramids. So we can start tar- talking about that. So what's your, your new book going to be about? It's coming out in August, correct? Yes, my new book, Legends of the Pyramids, is coming out in August from Red Lightning Books. And it is a survey of the myths and legends surrounding the pyramids of Egypt, going all the way back to antiquity, straight through down to ancient aliens today. It covers all of the strange stories and amazing tales you've heard about the pyramids and takes a look at why people think very strange things about the pyramids and have for a very long time. All sorts of bizarre ideas from the idea that the pyramids were built as Joseph's granaries, the biblical story of of Joseph, all the way to the idea that aliens built the pyramids. People have had a remarkable number of ideas about what the pyramids were really for, and almost none of them have any basis in reality. And yet somehow those myths and legends persist over and over again from antiquity straight down to today. So my book really gives a survey of what people thought at various points in history, why they thought that, and how those ideas uh, merged into one another and built on each other into progressively more extreme and bizarre ideas about the true history of the pyramids. So why do you think a lot of these stories arise and what's the interest in uh, taking supernatural explanations to explain this kind of stuff? Well, that's a great question. in antiquity, they actually knew who built the pyramids. The Egyptians were well aware that the Egyptians had built the pyramids, and even the Greeks and Romans had a pretty good idea of the builders of the pyramids. They knew that they had been built as tombs for the Egyptian kings. They knew, in Greek form anyway, the names of the kings who had built them. And those ideas never really disappeared entirely. The works of Herodotus and Diodorus Siculus were known through the Middle Ages, and it should have been obvious who built the pyramids through all of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance and onward. But uh, during late antiquity, in, when the Roman Empire is starting to come apart, when things are starting to get bad um, in terms of the social and uh, economic and political cohesion in the area, people are turning to these um, increasingly more supernatural and spiritual ways of understanding the past and with the rise of Christianity especially, the idea sort of came about that the pyramids had to fit into a Christian context. And of all the things in the Bible, which covers Egypt and Egyptian culture extensively in its way, the pyramids aren't mentioned. And that struck a lot of uh, late antique and early medieval people as strange. You know, these are the biggest buildings in the world and they're not in the Bible. Now, why wouldn't they be in the Bible? So explanations um, were offered by, um, by Christians to try to take this very obvious fact that these are the biggest, most impressive monuments in the world and merge that into the biblical narrative. 
So what you have is this idea that the pyramids have to fit somewhere. So one of the uh, prominent suggestions was that they were the granaries of Joseph, that um, when there was the seven years of famine in Egypt and Joseph had built granaries to store the grain um, to prepare for the famine, that the pyramids were the granaries. Now that should have been obviously untrue since the pyramids are not hollow for one thing, and there isn't much room right. in there to store grain, but it fit into a biblical context. So a large number of people went with it, both because they had this strong belief that they had to be something that was in the Bible and also this idea that the pagans couldn't be better than the Christians. And if the pyramids were really just the work of pagan kings in honor of themselves, then it would somehow impugn the glory of God because the pyramids were even greater than any of the monuments that the Jews or the Christians had erected. So there's this idea that they have to be folded into the Abrahamic faiths to become part of that religious worldview. And now the granaries myth wasn't the most uh, impressive of the uh, stories that were told in the late Middle Ages, late uh, antiquity in the Middle Ages, but they, it was one of the longest lasting. Um, one of the other ideas that became increasingly popular around that time was the suggestion that the pyramids had been built before the flood by the uh, the Bible giants, the Nephilim, um, who were the kings mm -hmm. of Egypt, of course, and that they were built um, as a way of preserving knowledge from Noah's flood. And therefore, they fit into the biblical worldview, not as monuments built by a patriarch, but as these uh, giant uh, pillars of, basically pillars of sin from all of the evil knowledge of the giants. But uh, these competing views sort of went back and forth for a very long time and inspired a massive number of different ideas about what the pyramids really were. Almost all of the uh, bizarre and occult notions of the pyramids come from one of those medieval or late antique ideas. There's rarely anything that's new in uh, pyramid mythology. Yeah, so it's almost like taking the already known story we we know how the pyramids were built like you're saying herodotus told us the the story mm -hmm. of the pyramids i think like you were saying the the main reason that people choose to do this is to fit their own narrative and that's oh, certainly 100 percent. they they want it to be their own and you, you've talked extensively about that with the the mound builders myth as well that was the same thing this uh want for a mm -hmm. ancient american history because uh it was relatively new with the, the Bering Strait compared to uh, the rest of Europe and North Africa. Yeah, uh, one of the uh, interesting sidelights of history is how these uh, myths sort of emerge and take on a life of their own in large measure due to their political and social relevance. In the case of the mound builder myth, when settlers uh, from Europe began to colonize uh, North America, they ran across these large earthen mounds. And even though everybody should have known exactly what they were, the native peoples told them, these are mounds our ancestors built, uh, European Americans did not accept that um, in large measure because they felt that acknowledging that native people had an ancient uh, 
and worthy culture that was at least on par with the uh, deep antiquity of Europe would compromise this notion that Native Americans weren't really human and taking their land was therefore acceptable. So they invented all sorts of fantastical ideas about who really built the burial mounds, uh, and the platform mounds and the pyramid mounds. This took the form of claims that the Vikings had built it, claims that mm -hmm. um, the Jews had come over from Judea and brought the Ark of the Covenant and built the mounds. And it came down to saying the Romans, the Egyptians, the Greeks, uh, let's see, it was ancient Scots, um, Celts, <laughs> Atlanteans, and eventually we got down to space aliens, but it was really anyone and everyone except Native Americans because obviously right. Native Americans couldn't have done it. And this, you know, seems silly, but for a very long time, it wasn't just a wacky idea on the fringes of society, but this is what was seriously discussed in academic journals and in America's newspapers among the cultural elite. Four U.S. presidents were interested in, if not outright supporters of the mound builder myth. And Andrew Jackson cited this idea that the mounds had been built by an ancient race that the bloodthirsty Native Americans had somehow eradicated as the foundation for the Indian Removal Act and what became the Trail of Tears. The argument was that if Native Americans didn't build those mounds, then a lost race had done so, and the lost race must have been eliminated by the Native Americans, and therefore Native Americans were not just recent and transient interlopers in American history, but were also dangerous and bloodthirsty and had to be removed from the territory that uh, was being restored to white colonizers, the relatives of whoever that lost race had been. Right. And I've spent some time over at Cahokia. I don't know if you've heard of that site, but it's a Mississippian. Mm -hmm. It's this massive Mississippian site with all these huge pyramids. That are, they're absolutely amazing. It's just you look at this and then I've done a few digs as well of Mississippian sites and compare it to their artifacts. And it's, it's so hard to believe that you think these people weren't complex enough based off the tools that we know <laughs> they had that the time that mm -hmm. we know that they had them. It's just, it's crazy that we need some outside source to be able to explain what we already see with a complex amount of technology that the native Americans had in their own right. Well, that's the power of motivated reasoning and the power of racism, basically. When people who don't want to believe uh, need to come up with an explanation, they will come up with one, and it's not going to be flattering. It's going to be an explanation that flatters their own ideas about their culture, their lives, and their power. So we see that all over the world. Um, there's the famous case of the ruins of Great Zimbabwe which everyone ought to have known were built by the native uh, black African peoples um, in that region of Zimbabwe. But at the time, uh, Zimbabwe was a colony of Britain and then later a white minority uh, republic. And the white minority government didn't want to acknowledge that. And so they uh, supported fringe alternative ideas that the ruins had been built by the Portuguese or by a lost white race or basically anyone other than the black Africans. 
And that was an official government position for uh, quite a while until the uh, Rhodesian government collapsed and was replaced by um, Black African rule in Zimbabwe. Right. And I think this is the major theme in your work that I've noticed, at least, is uh, it's taking a lot of these fringe ideas and uh, these movements and uh, showing them that it, it's not really a matter of taking and twisting a story, but actually trying to find the truth, what actually happened, what how these sites actually developed. And that's the the source of your new book, uh, Legends of the Pyramids, specifically talking about the pyramids and not that they were built by aliens or were used as Joseph's granaries or something besides what Herodotus literally told us they were used for. <laughs> so as far as, yeah, as far oh. as Legends of the Pyramids, mm -hmm. uh, what other types of fringe stories, shall I say, uh, do, <laughs> you, do you mention? And, and Legend of the Pyramids? Well, uh, the one I give the most space to because it was the most influential is one that developed among the Arab uh, peoples who moved into Egypt uh, following the uh, Arab conquest of what had been um, Roman, later Byzantine Egypt. And they merged native Egyptian traditions with the Judeo-Christian ideas about the pyramids and developed an increasingly and extensively elaborate story about the pyramids role in salvation history. So more or less how they were both a manifestation of the divine will and also uh, symbols of the great flood. The story revolves around the uh, notion that the great flood had been prophesied either by the uh, culture hero Hermes Trismegistus or by priests of Egypt. Mm -hmm. And they had seen the flood coming and ran to uh, build pyramids in order to preserve the ancient knowledge of Egypt uh, from the floodwaters. Now, in this particular telling of the story, the knowledge of Egypt was both divine and evil at the same time. It originated in, this, in the revelation that was given to Adam uh, and his son, Seth, who had this um, idea, who had these sheets of knowledge from the heavens that had all sorts of historical, cultural, and magical information. But that revelation had become corrupted by the pagans of Egypt who had diverted from the true Christian path. Well, they're telling the true Islamic path. Um, they were adapting Christian ideas for an Islamic audience, of course. <laughs> Uh, and so there's this tension in the story between the divine revelation and the sort of evil um, pagan occult knowledge that's mixed in with it. So that the pyramids are simultaneously a divine feat that celebrates the glory of God and also the embodiment of the corruption of that that uh, needed to be wiped out by the flood. And so in this story, a king named Surid built the pyramids in order to preserve all the wonders of science and technology from the flood. And in the most elaborate versions of the story, the pyramids are filled with absolute wonders, statues that move by themselves, magic mirrors that can see anywhere in the world, uh, sort of a, a medieval version of the iPad, I suppose. And 
what you have is a uh, a story that becomes very mythically and culturally resonant. It's so popular that it's repeated in dozens of works of history across the Islamic world and eventually finds its way into Europe. And this story has such power and such resonance because of its connection both to the pagan mysteries of antiquity and also to the Judeo-Christian Islamic uh, notions of Abrahamic religion, that it inspires people in the early modern era right through to today to begin following this story to look for the real secrets of the pyramids. So because the medieval authors associated the pyramids with astrological predictions about when the flood would happen, you see modern investigators deciding that the pyramids had an astrological or astronomical connection to a catastrophic period similar to the flood. Thus, Robert Baval and Graham Hancock, for example, associate mm -hmm. the pyramids with the constellation of Orion and the year 10,500 BC. That notion comes directly out of this medieval pyramid myth. And you see people who are hunting for treasure in the Great Pyramid, not because the pyramids have been known to be filled with treasure. Um, they haven't been since antiquity when they were looted. But because the medieval authors wrote about the miraculous treasures that were hidden inside the pyramids. And that legend persists straight down to today. In fact, the medieval pyramid story inspired all sorts of fake ideas about what people think of ancient Egypt. Uh, you've probably heard of the legend of the curse of Tutankhamun. Yep. Well, the curse of Tutankhamun didn't really come from Tutankhamun. It came from a uh, early 20th century, well, she was late 19th, early 20th century author called Maria Corelli. And she um, was a fan of one of those medieval accounts of the pyramids. And she took from its story about the uh, guardian spirits of the pyramids that would uh, kill anyone who committed sins inside the pyramid, this notion that the pharaohs had cursed their tombs and used that to explain how and why Lord Carnarvon had died uh, following the opening of King Tut's tomb. So these old ideas, they don't just stop in the Middle Ages. They keep going today, inspiring one generation after the other. All of the uh, greatest hits of what they uh, like to jokingly call pyramidiacy, <laughs> the dumb ideas about the pyramids, the, almost all of them come right out of this uh, mix of medieval myths and legends. And that goes right down to the space aliens of today. The reason people say space aliens built the pyramids is because in medieval times, they said that fallen angels had done so. And the fallen angels became equated with the space aliens. Right. So it's almost a matter of interpretation. And I know ancient aliens has done this and you've <laughs> talked about it. Uh, the idea that yes. they they take these gods that uh, a lot of these civilizations worshipped mm -hmm. and then they transform them into these aliens, even though that may have not necessarily mm -hmm. been how the, the people at the time saw it, because obviously they saw them as these gods that they were to worship and probably not the interdimensional beings that were told <laughs> on ancient aliens. Yeah, well, I that's think it's actually, a huge matter of that's interpretation. actually an interesting question because the stories went through some pretty big shifts over time. All of this originates in the uh, famous story of Enoch and the Watchers, who were the fallen mm -hmm. angels who fell from heaven and taught humanity all sorts of arts and sciences, astrology, and for some reason, makeup. <laughs> they were really big into makeup. I don't know why. It's in the book of Enoch, but... Uh, Anyway, um, 
those fallen angels are the origin point for all of the, these stories. And what's interesting is that they start out as fallen angels and are supernatural and divine figures. But by late antiquity and the early Middle Ages, you have that view almost universally rejected and they become transformed into human kings. The names of the fallen angels are given to the fictitious uh, rulers of ancient Egypt and ancient Assyria and so on in these uh, late antique and uh, early medieval chronicles. And what you see is that they took the narrative that's from the Book of Enoch and took out the supernatural aspects and rewrote it by merging um, the Enochian watchers and a list of ancient um, Babylonian kings from the work of the uh, Babylonian priest Barossus. And they took those and made those into the early kings of the tribes of Cain and Seth in the biblical narrative. So you have the supernatural figures turned into human ones. And then what you have is uh, modern people going back and saying, oh, well, there's the same names of the fallen angels. So these myths and legends about humans must have originated in stories of supernatural creatures. And since we know that angels are also space aliens, therefore these are the space aliens. So it becomes almost a circular loop where one myth inspires the other and then goes back to the original in uh, kind of an ever more dramatic and more extreme spiral as it moves further and further away from the origin point toward more um, extreme and more, uh, I guess we would say, technologically uh, plausible scenarios as modern writers attempt to take old ideas and cast them in uh, new guises that we would today think of as superficially plausible. After all, it's hard to argue with uh, that there's a scientific basis for angels, but it's a lot easier to say that there's a scientific uh, explanation for space aliens. Right, and I wanted to build off that and then transition into the article that you wrote in The New Republic mm -hmm. because it reminded me of uh, a specific part you wrote about that, uh, that about the Pentagon actively suppressing UFO work because it feared UFOs were demons and that the research might provoke Satan. <laughs> well, now, to be fair, that is not me saying that. That is the position that several of the people who have been involved in advocating for UFOs have uh, put forward. Uh, Lou Elizondo, who was the former head of the Pentagon's UFO program, at least in his telling, uh, he has said on multiple occasions that he ran into opposition um, in his hunt for UFO information from people uh, placed in the Pentagon who had this um, extreme Christian notion that UFOs were satanic. And he's not the only one. Um, Nick Redfern, who is an author of paranormal um, literature, has said that uh, Hal Putoff and Kit Green, who were uh, members of the team who investigated space ghosts and other oddities uh, for a contractor for the Pentagon, came to him looking for information about what Nick Redfern calls the Collins Elite, which is a uh, probably fictitious um, organization about uh, that 
operated inside of the Pentagon and supposedly had these uh, beliefs that UFOs were from Satan and that investigating them would promote, uh, provoke demonic entities. Now, we see that mythology kind of spreading out from this core idea, which I don't think anyone would seriously dispute, that there are evangelical Christians in the Pentagon who associate UFOs with demons. Um, I think that's fairly widespread enough among Christian groups that it's obvious that at least some people do hold that position. But this notion that the yeah, group sure. is an organized elite who operate is as a kind of cult within the government is a rather extreme um, interpretation of that. However, that mythology, the idea that there is this uh, cult of people afraid that UFOs are going to spark demon activity, uh, it keeps spreading out from that center. We saw that um, Jacques Vallée has uh, apparently spoken favorably of it, the famed UFO researcher, and in a podcast a while back, uh, Diane Pazolka, the uh, author of American Cosmic, she talked about how she firmly believes that this Collins elite are operating within the government. And, you know, it's, it's disconcerting to see people taking these ideas that are on the surface absurd and running with them almost entirely without evidence. It's not like anybody's turned up documents or records or even, um, on the record uh, named interviews with people who are willing to say, yes, I'm a member of the Collins elite and I'm combating demons for the government. Yeah. In fact, the only person I've ever heard say that uh, specifically was the QAnon shaman in his YouTube video where he talked about fighting demons uh, and space aliens for the, <laughs> he claiming to be a secret soldier for the federal government um, operating in the psychic plane in outer space. Wow. Okay then. <laughs> that's an interesting take on it but uh yeah i do want to talk about your your article because uh we began talking about sure. it a little bit there but yes. you just came out with an article in the new republic on how washington got hooked on flying saucers and uh i i read it before we did our interview here and i found it uh quite interesting <laughs> because you talk about again the ufo phenomenon how uh people are trying to find explanations to these things that they can't understand. And it can sometimes be dangerous and uh, detrimental to, to the way things are by assuming that, oh, the government's hiding stuff from us. Uh, there's this big conspiracy going on in the background and, and how dangerous that can be. So well, we can get into your article. Sure. Uh, it's not just that it's dangerous in terms of promoting conspiracy theories, which it obviously is but also this particular conspiracy theory because of how it originated and what its goals and purposes are. The uh, UFO investigation that the Pentagon undertook uh, in the middle 2000s at the uh, behest of Harry Reid, the former senator who funded it, wasn't in initially intended to uh, investigate the kind of... Uh, flying objects that are buzzing uh, Navy ships and Navy pilots that we've seen in those recently uh, released videos. Instead, it originated in 
the hunt for space poltergeists on a ranch in Utah at the uh, instigation of a billionaire, uh, Robert Bigelow, who uh, became Mm -hmm. very wealthy running a hotel chain. And he was deeply interested in the supernatural. And he had put together a team to study whether there was a hole in reality that allowed entities from another dimension to filter into this one, manifesting as poltergeist-like space alien UFOs or other supernatural creatures. And on his ranch in Utah, that's it there, Skinwalker Ranch. (laughs) Yeah, did it catch on? Yes. Skin, yep, Skinwalker Ranch, now the site of a History Channel reality paranormal show. Right. Uh, yep, at Skinwalker Ranch, he uh, not only was investigating these space poltergeists coming in from another dimension, but convinced a scientist from the Defense Intelligence Agency that there really were entities that were filtering in through a stargate or a portal in on his ranch. And consequently, the DIA began working with Bigelow to study the supernatural aspects of Skinwalker Ranch, psychic powers, space Mm -hmm. aliens, space ghosts, and so on. And um, through the instigation of Robert Bigelow, Harry Reid took that informal cooperation and formalized it in a program that over the next five years would spend $22 million dollars mostly funneled to Bigelow to study space ghosts and related phenomena. And he produced a report uh, given to the Pentagon in which they, he, uh, his team, especially Hal Putoff, Jacques Vallée, and so on, wrote about alien abductions and interdimensional beings and all sorts of uh, paranormal oddities. And according to the New Yorker's article on UFOs recently, When the Pentagon looked at that report, they immediately knew that they couldn't possibly release it because doing so would be a disaster. And I think that about says it all. Everyone, I hope, uh, understood that what they were doing there was uh, Harry Reid's and Robert Bigelow's boondoggle and that the information, if you can call it that, that they were producing wasn't really serious science or anything actionable, but was a supernatural paranormal vanity project, basically. And yet somehow this project spiraled into the UFO crisis that the remnants of that uh, team have been promoting to this day because the uh, Skinwalker Ranch project segued into what became the UFO investigation that became famous in the New York Times uh, when Louis Elizondo took it upon himself to continue the program's work. And when he decided to leave the Pentagon, joined up with the people who had been working on the Skinwalker Ranch project and all of the supernatural things. And they used their connections in the alien abduction world to feed the story to Leslie Keen, a journalist who had been uh, romantically involved with an alien abduction researcher. And it was through that connection that they knew her And by feeding her the story, they were able to seed it into the media. Uh, Through happy coincidence, Keen, due to her connections in the alien abduction world, knew a former New York Times reporter who was writing a book about an alien abduction researcher. His name was Ralph Blumenthal, and he was the one who decided to take the story to the New York Times. And because he had uh, credibility as a prize-winning journalist, 
he was able to convince the Times that this was not just a good story on the basis that a billionaire had bought himself a space alien research program, but that there was really something more serious uh, to it in terms of an actual UFO mystery that needed to be discussed. And therefore, because of alien abduction of all things, we ended up having the story in the New York Times and the media coverage that grew out of that legitimized this uh, sort of paranormal boondoggle in a way that previous investigations of UFOs had never seriously been considered in the most elite reaches of the media. So as far as Skinwalker Ranch, what, <laughs> what, what are your opinions on that? Because I know you've talked about ancient aliens, so I want to see what you think about that. I think it's fair to say that no one has published or produced incontrovertible evidence of anything paranormal going on at Skinwalker Ranch. The supposed best evidence for it that uh, gets presented on TV and in books and in uh, popular magazine articles um, isn't terribly convincing and hasn't uh, really withstood scrutiny. Now, the owner of Skinwalker Ranch, he invited me out there uh, last oh, really? year. <laughs> he did, yes, Brandon Fugel, the new uh, owner of Skinwalker Ranch. He invited me out there to see for myself and told me that I'd be convinced by the paranormal happenings. Now, I didn't take him up on the offer because I, well, I have a little kid and don't really feel like leaving him behind to go scare myself out in a cold, dark ranch for the middle of the night. Um, right. I'm pretty sure you can see a lot of scary shadows and shapes um, in your own backyard. Mm -hmm. But it's, uh, it's my understanding that if they had something that they really could prove was supernatural, we would have seen it by now. I mean, they've been researching it for, what is it, about 20 years or so, and have produced nothing um, of scientific value at least nothing that's been published in a scientific journal or even uh, presented for scientific scrutiny. So I'm not, uh, I'm not really convinced. Uh, do, do you need to get that? <laughs> no, I don't. Unfortunately, uh, spam calls, you know, <laughs> I was hoping yeah. they'd hold off for a little while, but uh, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, I, and I mean, it just recently or fairly recently got aired on TV too. So with that aspect mm. added to it, they're they're gonna dramatize a lot of it, and I think that's just gonna make it even harder to find the truth if there's anything out there. Well, that's the thing with all of these alien, supernatural, and paranormal ideas. You don't really see the actual science, they go straight to television. I mean, what did, right. Lou, Elizondo, what did Lou Elizondo do when he left the Pentagon uh, in a huff saying that they weren't taking space aliens seriously, taking UFOs seriously? He uh, teamed up with the Space Ghost people and they took the project to the History Channel to go make a reality show about it. Is that Project Blue Book? Uh, that was the fiction uh, story. That was a, a scripted drama. It was unidentified, oh, okay. unidentified was the name of the uh, Okay documentary uh, but yeah, they did the same thing with, they, yeah they did the same thing with project blue book though too mm -hmm. and the moment that you know skinwalker ranch passed into the hands of somebody who wasn't affiliated with the uh pentagon research uh you know 
it started to become another one of those reality TV circuses. Now, I know Brandon Fubel is very um, adamant that he was only doing the show because um, it was going to be treated seriously and with respect and that he wasn't doing it for the money or the fame and so on. But, you know, it's a reality TV show about right. hunting the supernatural on your spook ranch. And that's just weird. Just and, it keeps happening. <laughs> and it keeps happening over and over and over again. You know, every time the, uh, you know, how many people uh, are ghost hunters on TV, you know, right. if you really genuinely thought you had evidence of the paranormal or the supernatural is going to the travel channel or I don't even know which channel shows all the ghost like shows now. Sci-fi and, <laughs> sci and whatnot. Yeah. Would your first notion be let's go do a reality TV show about it rather than, you know, actually, actually presenting your findings in some way that uh, would have real world consequences. I mean, if you genuinely thought that you had information that was going to transform our very understanding of science and uh, time and space and natural law, I really don't think that a reality TV show is the forum that you would choose to present it. Right. I mean, Lou Elizondo was just on Expedition X on the Discovery Channel to go hunt underwater space aliens with Josh Gates. And it's like, you're telling me you want to be taken seriously on an issue of supreme national security importance, and then you're on a reality show talking, hunting space aliens underwater, because, you know, serious. Right. And the other part that I find difficult with it is we reach more people inherently by airing this kind of stuff on TV, but it's not always the attention that we necessarily want. Because like you're saying, a reality TV show is not yeah. the same as an academic talk or bringing it to the more important authorities if you did have something that was authentic. Well, certainly. I mean, television is still the way that uh, you can reach the largest audience. Now, it's not as large of an audience anymore. You know, in the old days, um, when NBC, for example, ran uh, the Rod Serling special presenting Eric Von Donegan's Chariots of the Gods, mm -hmm. they were speaking to tens of millions of people. And at that time, that was, you know, almost, uh, I think it was the numbers, it was about a quarter of all Americans watched it. Now, when you talk about ancient aliens, they have 1 million viewers, which is 0.3% of America watching that. So, you know, when you run the numbers, it's a very small audience watching any one particular TV show. The power of the media comes collectively. When the same idea airs on multiple channels, on multiple broadcasts, across multiple platforms, that sort of reinforcement creates this idea that this is a serious and important issue and this is something that is um, that we need to pay attention to, something that is going to impact us directly. So when the History Channel was telling 0.3% of Americans that UFOs are real, aliens are invading, panic, panic, it wasn't really mm -hmm. as impactful as when the New York Times and CBS and NBC and ABC are all telling you that UFOs are invading our skies and this is a national security crisis and we need to do something about it now. When you see that reinforced everywhere at the same time, that agenda setting becomes much more powerful than when it's just one crazy person on some cable channel that almost nobody sees. 
Right. Yeah. Cable is definitely going away as it is. <laughs> well, you yeah. know, Ancient Aliens is streaming on a couple of different platforms, and Netflix keeps uh, promoting Stephen Greer documentaries and other uh, bizarre alien stuff. They also gave Leslie Keen a documentary about the searching for the supernatural in the afterlife. And HBO Max just announced that they're making a biopic of Leslie Keen, Lou Elizondo, and Chris Mellon, mm. and their heroic struggle to reveal the truth about UFOs. They're going to leave out the part about the alien abduction stuff, of course, because, you know, serious. Right. And you, you are also in uh, a article in the New York Times as well. Uh, yes, the New, the New York Times gave me a very nice write-up um, about my New Republic article. And, and I, uh, I kind of went along the same lines with a lot of what you're talking about with the, the New Republic article that you wrote as well, right? Mm -hmm. That it's a lot of this dramatized nonsense that we're seeing in, in the media and with this pseudoscience, that's yeah, uh, the, quite dangerous. Yeah, the journalist for the uh, New York Times did a roundup of opinions about the uh, UFO situation and uh, was kind enough to include my opinion in it and placed it um, almost at the end of the article where it was um, more or less an endorsement of my point of view, uh, the parting thought that uh, New York Times readers should be left with. And uh, that goes a little bit of the way toward uh, repairing some of the damage that the New York Times coverage of UFOs has done devoting so much space and so much time to Leslie Keen and Ralph Blumenthal's ideas without mm -hmm. telling their readers how closely they were um, involved with the To the Stars Academy team, with the Space Ghost people, with alien abduction researchers and so on, it was a disservice to readers because it uh, implied that they were neutral, unbiased and objective observers of the UFO situation when in fact they are and have been very closely connected to it um, and very um, deeply involved in the um, machinations going on behind the scenes. Yeah, for sure. And I'll just read the, the part here where you were mentioned in the New York Times for the people that are going to be listening to the audio portion later. But I, like you're saying, you were mentioned in it, and uh, it's right here. So as amusing as the, as the UFO intrigue is, Jason Calvoto, argues there is also something quite sinister about how fringe beliefs have been laundered by some of the country's most powerful institutions behind the creamy pages of high-end magazines and the marble columns of the capital the media elite and congress are being played by a small loosely connected group of people with bizarre ideas about science he writes for the new republic i mean we were talking about that article earlier so yeah it's very upsetting like i've said because makes a dangerous situation with the government where we're bringing forward these ideas and a distrust for the people who are trying to run the country. Ultimately. Oh, that's certainly true. But it's also the case that this isn't significantly different from what has happened in the past. I mean, as far back as the 1940s and 1950s, you found that there were people who were inside the military and did genuinely believe that there were space aliens invading us. Um, as early as the late 40s, early 50s, you find that some of the people who were uh, working on Project Grudge and Project Sign, the predecessors of Project Blue Book, mm -hmm. were actually convinced that flying saucers were space aliens. 
they didn't really have any evidence for that, mind you. But they felt at the time that military pilots' testimonies had to be taken very seriously and that there were only two viable explanations. Either space aliens genuinely were invading or military pilots could be basically hysterical and seeing things. And because they felt that members of the military were trained observers, that they were the best of the best, the best and brightest that America had to offer, they could not therefore be hysterical because, and this was true of the sexist era of the 1950s, Hysteria was something for women, and these were big, strong he-men, and you couldn't possibly have hysterical he-men, because what would that mean about military readiness? What would that mean about America's mm-hmm. ability to fight the communists? What would that mean about the Korean War? And so there was this group of people straight from the 1940s onward who genuinely felt that because there was no other alternative, it had to be space aliens. And it was born of this idea that we can't question the military and We can't uh, believe that rational men could have a uh, hysteria that was usually associated with women. And those ideas are still happening today. Now, they dropped a lot of the sexism out of it. Now it's more that um, the argument is that military pilots are trained observers and therefore can't be wrong. And that argument we saw on 60 Minutes, we've seen in the defenses of um, the pilot testimony that's going on with the current UFO flap. And, you know, it's not that the pilots aren't accurately reporting what they think they're seeing. It's that cognitive biases, misidentifications, optical illusions, there are many different ways that what we interpret in our heads doesn't necessarily reflect what's objectively occurring in the world around us. But there is this notion that to point that out is to question the military and to question the military is essentially to question America. And there is this sort of patriotic notion that you can't do that without violating a a taboo. And so it comes down to this notion that it's either space aliens or you're not a patriot. And we see Lou Elizondo making that claim, not explicitly, mind you, but he talks about being a warrior for truth. He talks about how UFO believers are the true patriots. And he talks about these things in terms that we would typically associate with a political campaign. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's uncomfortable when you start politicizing these ideas and when you start saying that there are certain viewpoints that you can't express because doing so would violate these sort of social taboos. Now, they say, on the other hand, that, oh, well, talking about space aliens has been a stigmatized taboo forever, except that it's on TV every single day, has been for the last half century, and books, magazines, journals, newspapers, you have... uh, dramas and movies and you know it's it's there it's everywhere you want to look it's, it's such a part of popular culture now that it's hard yes and, and what are exactly suppressed but uh, they're being oppressed and suppressed to the point that you know you can hardly find ufos anywhere except on tv the internet and everywhere else it's, yeah. it's ridiculous 
And then what what are these pilots exactly looking at? They're, they're these fuzzy images that even yes. with the technology that we have, how can you say definitively exactly what these things are? So well, that's, that's yeah, I'm not a physicist, um, so I can't possibly comment on the explanations that have been offered for the various objects that have been seen. Um, in my mind, some of those explanations are quite convincing. Um, it's very strange that according to the recent New York Times report, the Pentagon hasn't um, come to similar conclusions in their investigation. And it sort of does raise the question of who exactly has been doing the uh, UFO investigations for them and their UAP task force. But um, in many cases, the issue is if you see something, there's the fact of what you see, and then there's the interpretation of what meaning you ascribe to it. Right. And I don't think anyone's questioning the fact that pilots say that they are seeing white blobs or grainy images on radar or whatever it is that they're seeing. Mm -hmm. But the issue is the interpretation of that. And it isn't necessarily the case that people who are flying jet planes really fast and trying to make sense of a lot of stimuli happening at the same time are also doing the analytical science that would um, ascribe interpretation and meaning to the observation. So, you know, what you see isn't necessarily what you get. And that's why we uh, have the scientific method to begin to look into things. And you don't just trust the word of the first person who happens to see something. Yeah, well, that's the hard part, right, is we, we know people are seeing these things. We have evidence that they're seeing these things, but we don't know exactly what these things are. And that's where it, it gets confusing because we, mm -hmm. we, know, we know they're out there, but it doesn't necessarily mean <laughs> well, they're aliens look, or interdimensional beings. It's just look, something that we these can things, explain. Yeah, but these things are have historical parallels. In the uh, 1940s, before the first wave of UFO sightings, there were the famous Foo Fighter sightings. But before even that, you see different historical periods, all see stimuli in the sky, but interpret them differently. In the 19th century, they saw things in the sky and interpreted them as blips. In the early 20th century, uh, they saw things in the sky and called them ghost rockets and thought that they were ro uh, resembled rockets. Right. And prior to that, um, in the early modern era, when they saw things in the sky and also in the Middle Ages, they looked up and they genuinely thought they saw boats in the sky. And before that, the Romans reported seeing altars and men in togas and even full-on mm. battles um, with armies in the sky. So yes, people Constantine are and his vision of the cross. Constantine allegedly saw the cross in the sky. Right. But you know, people have always seen things in the sky. And I can't say what exactly it is that they saw. But what they describe seeing filters through cultural expectations. So in Roman times, it seemed logical to see armies or men in togas in the sky. In the Middle Ages, it was logical to see boats in the sky. In the uh, early 20th century, it was logical to see rockets in the sky. And now, thanks to the myth of the flying saucer, which comes directly out of science fiction, it seems logical to see alien spaceships in the sky or yeah. objects that we associate with sort of sci-fi technology, you know, perfectly round um, tic-tac shaped objects or 
silvery spheres or triangles, whatever it is. But the, the bottom line is that how we interpret ambiguous stimuli filters through our cultural expectations of what we think we should be seeing. Right. And uh, this is not just something we see with uh, trying to understand and interpret UFOs, but it's also th something we see with your new book as well, Legends of the Pyramids, <laughs> different yes. people seeing the pyramids and interpreting them in different ways and fitting those to their, to their own conclusions. It's a matter of human perspective. It certainly is. And uh, with that, we're uh, nearing the end of our time here. So uh, if you have anything else you want to share or final comments, uh, <laughs> the, the floor is open to you. Well, I sh should probably share the newest example of exactly what we were talking about. Uh, you may have seen recently that the former TV paranormal ghost hunter Zach Baggins just spent $382,000 to buy a car part that had originally been part of the Porsche that James Dean crashed uh, that killed him back in 1955. He bought that part and is going to install it in his Las Vegas Museum of Horror and the Paranormal and the Occult in a whole room dedicated to the supernatural curse of James Dean's Porsche and the allegations that this car is not only cursed but is active, has actively been killing, maiming, and injuring people and driving them to ruin for the last 60-some-odd uh, years. And it's another situation where this kind of fake lore arises because a bunch of people told a lot of myths. They get folded together and then get recycled over and over again. This particular story originated from a guy who mostly made it up to help make his, well, to help... Um, increase his book sales and make his uh, investments more profitable. It got filtered through a comic book, which is where a lot of people heard about it and uh, decided that it must be true and um, bounced around the internet over the uh, several decades after a long period in tabloid magazines and uh, in books. And suddenly you have this uh, supernatural curse that has no real foundation in fact, but it's now going to be a major exhibit in a Las Vegas museum where certainly thousands, if not more, people are going to see it. And suddenly you have an entire story that basically came out of nowhere and got filtered through the media. And because of that repetition, uh, took on a life of its own and is now accepted as more or less true. And that's, you know, another example of exactly what we're talking about with the UFOs, what we're talking about with the pyramids. It's a process that happens over and over again, where somebody makes up a story, it gets repeated often enough, and then it becomes a myth that has the weight of history and legend behind it. Right. And uh, talking about your book, Legends of the Pyramids, uh, it comes out in August. Uh, where can people find you or uh, go and purchase that book when it comes out? Uh, the book will be available at most major retailers, uh, including Amazon.com or direct from the publisher, Red Lightning Books. You can find me online at my website, jasoncalavito.com, or you can follow me on Twitter at Jason Calavito. Awesome. And uh, with that, Jason, thank you for joining us today. It was a really great conversation. It's great talking with you, too. Thanks. Thanks.